This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is Joey Meyer, number 312. Joey Meyer, DH for the Milwaukee Brewers. Okay, Joey Meyer. Looking forward to this one, and we will get to him in just a second. But first, we do have some follow-up from two of our previous episodes. The first is in regards to Ron Kittle. Ron Kittle seems like a fun dad and (laughs) friend of the show, White Sox fan and Bradley University alum Kabari on Facebook said, I shared a box at the cell with Kitty once. He grabbed the last hot dog before this other guy, so he left for a few moments, came back with two more, and said, sorry about that, I made you a double dog. Which definitely (laughs) seems like a Ron Kittle thing to do. Ron Kittle seems to enjoy all of the meats and all of the tacos and all of the hot dogs. So thank you, Kabari, for that fun story about Ron Kittle being a nice guy. Other Ron Kittle follow-up, I visited my parents this last week. And my dad told me that Ron Kittle delivered a bench made out of baseball bats, which is one of the items that Ron Kittle sells on his website, to my dad's boss. I got to get some more information about this. I don't know that my dad actually met him, but one of these bat benches was delivered to my dad's place of employment. So I thought that was pretty cool. Also, while I was out there, I grabbed all of my old boxes of baseball cards and found approximately a thousand or so, 88 tops cards that i should probably put in order also my dad a couple months ago gave me a signed eric davis baseball so this has led to matt getting a kent to colby figurine and me getting a signed eric davis baseball i also got a uh, a very cool andy hawkins style san diego padres hat from my father-in-law so again if we just speak things into this into the void of this podcast stuff shows up this also led me to go to my local card shop because I needed a, a cube for this for this signed baseball, and that's Elite Sports Cards on Montrose. So I get this cube, and while I'm in there, I'm chatting with the guys, and I say something about the podcast, and I just say, you know, I, I do this podcast. If you're interested, give it a listen. And the guy behind the counter tries to give me a rack pack, cellophane pack of 88 Tops cards. i think him not realizing just how many thousands of these cards i have laying around so i declined (laughs) but hopefully he listens thank you to elite sports cards on montrose in chicago if you're in the area check them out and a reminder to everyone listening to support your local card shop in whatever way you can because while they probably ripped you off when you were a kid now now they have fun stories to tell yes (laughs) Yeah, go get some Pokemons. The second area of follow-up I see here in the queue, David, has to do with last week's episode on Fred McGriff. Thanks to listener Jeffrey on Facebook, he said that he was surprised that we did not mention a very memorable moment in Atlanta baseball history. He said that this was a where-were-you-when moment to him, and that was a fire in the press box that coincided with Fred McGriff's arrival in Atlanta. I saw this in his biography, in Fred McGriff's biography, and I kind of just brushed past it. I didn't know how much to dig into it. But then when I was looking at it, this is kind of nuts. 
On July 20th, 1993, the Braves were nine games behind San Francisco. We mentioned this on the pod. They had just traded for Fred McGriff, and Mark Lemke was quoted as saying that McGriff would provide a spark to that Atlanta team. And boy, did he ever. Two hours before that first game that Fred McGriff is supposed to to be on the Braves, a, a catering sterno caught the press box on fire. This was not just like a not just a minor inconvenience. There were no sprinklers on that level at Fulton County Stadium. It required 40 firefighters to put this fire out. It caused $1.5 million in damage. Players were out there taking batting practice. Coaches were kind of looking up going like, I wonder if somebody's going to take care of that. The players weren't apparently so shocked by this. Mark Lemke and Jeff Blauser took a picture We'll include a link to this Atlanta Journal-Constitution article. There's a ton of flames and smoke behind them. That cannot have been healthy for the old lungs of Blauser and, and Lemke just standing on the field with this inferno behind them. Even more shocking, the fire was put out at 7 p.m., and they decided to just start the game at 9.40. So after a million-plus dollars in damages, they they decided to play the game. I don't... <laughs> I guess the fire department said it was safe for fans to be in the stadium. It seemed like quite a big fire, and maybe they should have canceled the game. I mean, if it's just the press box, the press can sit somewhere else. No big deal. And the press did. They went and sat in the stands for the game. Uh, the Braves went down 5 nothing in this game. McGriff hit his first home run for Atlanta, and they came back to win 8-5. to They won 75% of their games to close out that season. So pretty amazing story. Well, fiery update. Uh, Thank you for that, David. And thank you to Jeffrey. I have almost set my apartment on fire with a can of Sterno and a (laughs) nearly tragic fondue incident. Do you have a podcast about home fonduing? Fondue? (laughs) Fondues and don'ts? Oh, that's... I'm going to have to steal that now, (laughs) which I mentioned in my other podcast, Fondues and Don'ts. (laughs) Thank you for that suggestion, David. It was for titling that podcast. It's now a huge hit. So yeah, be careful at home with a can of Sterno. Once you light it on fire, do not move the can. <laughs> That's my lesson for all of you. Especially do not drop it on the floor. But now to our card and Joey Meyer. Matt, I was very excited to talk about Joey Meyer. We don't get a, l- a lot of opportunities to talk about Chicago college basketball coaching legends on this podcast, son of Ray Meyer, who of course discovered and coached the great George Mikan. Joey Meyer went on to coach DePaul basketball. He made seven NCAA tournaments. He had a huge year also in 1987, Chevy Coach of the Year. Yes, I get it. Let's talk for 40 minutes about Joey Meyer and Rod Strickland. DePaul basketball. No, sadly, it's not that Joey Meyer. David, we're talking about Joey Meyer, the rookie DH for the Milwaukee Brewers. This is card 312, and it was a request from a listener. I got this email a few weeks back from a former colleague and comrade from my time working for the United Methodist Church. So this is a pastor that I've known for some time who's also named Matt, but I'll just call him Rev. He had written in in the mailbag to say that he had found the show and was finding some enjoyment with it. And I asked him for a suggestion, and right away he 
being a big Brewers fan, said, as far as 88 Brewers go, the car that I got over and over was Joey Meyer. And I'll, I'll edit this lightly so as not to spoil the story, but his claim to fame was hitting the only career walk-off homer that blank ever surrendered. He also hit the longest home run ever as a minor leaguer the year before, close to 600 feet, if I recall correctly. By 1991, he was gone from pro baseball. Maybe not a show, but a seed of a show. I think that Rev hasn't listened long enough to understand that we don't need more than a seed to make a whole show, David. So looking forward to this one. I think we've got a good number of stories here for, for Rev to listen to. Yeah, he has two famous home runs, and we have eight pages of notes. So <laughs> uh, let's so let's get to it. Yes, <laughs> this one had another another great saber bio. Thank you to Rory Costello for this one. And Rory just wrote this one in December of 2020. I'm glad that folks are working on those saber bios so that we can have one for every single one of these cards. And at some point, hopefully. Matt, you and I can collaborate and write one of those. I should also say that I am a Sabre member, a a dues-paying member, so maybe I need to give them more money because they keep uh, giving us content. (laughs) We're getting every dollar's worth of our dues. That's for sure, folks. So going to the front of card 312, we have Joey Meyer. Joey Meyer, future stars. You have the, the beautiful multicolored graphic showing there. This is our first future stars of the 88 set. We did talk about Tim Pizendarski in the 1987 set. You know, I'm sure that this one turned out just as good as Tim Pizendarski. <laughs> <laughs> the 87 hit rate was okay. They had Bo Jackson, Rafael Palmero, BJ Surhoff, Dave Magadan. They also had Pat Dodson and Tim Pizendarski. 88, we got Joey Meyer, uh, Jose Lind, Al Leiter, or whoever is on that Al Leiter card. Kevin Elster and Mike Campbell. So how did all those guys do? We'll see how Joey did, and we'll get to those others in future episodes. Yeah, I'd say the real star of the card is Joey Meyer's mustache in this one. Yeah, and he has a little bit of a sneer going on in this. Like the the lips slightly raised, showing a little bit of teeth. He's not really smiling, more of a smirk. This is only our second brewer. We did Juan Nieves and now Joey Meyer. The two names you think of when you think of the 88 Brewers cards. <laughs> but Joey's mustache was ready to fit into that starting lineup with Robin Yount, with Dale Swaim. It's a good mustache. Also a rare one to have this kind of portrait shot where he's wearing the batting helmet. I'm wondering about that choice because with the lighting, you can really see kind of the scuffs and scratches on this batting helmet. <laughs> That's true. It does have that very good Milwaukee Brewers logo, the M and the B as the glove with yeah. the baseball in the middle. Yeah, that's a good design. And he's wearing the pinstripe top. Also good. Good stuff, this Brewers uniform. Yeah, I like it all the way around. Now going to the back of 312, we've got Joey Meyer, DH, 6-3-260, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Brewers in the fifth round, 1983. Born May 10th, 1962 in Honolulu, Hawaii, and a home in Kailua, Hawaii. This is our second Hawaiian player after Charlie Huff. And Joey was born in Honolulu. His dad, Tanner Joey Meyer Sr., was himself 6'3", 270. He was a Honolulu fireman. This Joey, Joey Jr., was also named Tanner Joey Meyer. 
He was born premature. He was five and a half pounds at birth, but he said that that did not last long and he was often the biggest kid in his class. With that size, of course, he played football as well as baseball at the Punahou School. The Punahou School is a private school that has a really great reputation, particularly in sports. It was founded in 1841. They have one of the best reputations for sports of any school in the country. According to Wikipedia, 514 state titles, all kinds of, um, of titles, stuff like swimming, baseball, football, you name the sport, they've probably won a title in it. Many Olympic champions, famous athletes uh, attended this school. This has one of the most extensive high school alumni pages that I've ever seen, and you know that I like to look at the famous alumni the alumni include the first territorial governor of Hawaii, Sanford Dole, golfer Michelle Wee, Robert Alexander Anderson. This is you know maybe less uh, prestigious than those other names, but he wrote the school's song and the football fight song, and he wrote the song Malikaliki Maka, which is Hawaii's way of saying Merry Christmas. <laughs> Another famous alumni noted White Sox fan Barack Obama. Oh, yeah. Also Sun Yat-sen. Sun Yat-sen, maybe we need to bring Andrew at Painted Cap back on to talk about Kuomintang history, but the KMT was the ruling party in mainland China until 1949, and Sun Yat-sen was the first leader of that party. When they were defeated by the communists, they retreated to Taiwan. I think that was beyond the point where Sun Yat-sen was alive, but he was the first leader of the, the KMT, which became the ruling party of Taiwan. For a semester, living in Hawaii, he went to this to this school. So a lot of prestigious alumni, and Joey's dad was an assistant football coach at the school, and football was really Joey's first love. He, while at the school, earned all-state honors in both football and baseball, and ended up being voted into the school's Sports Hall of Fame in 2019. His baseball coach had been a pirate scout in the 70s. And in 2020, he said, it's 40 years later and I'm still telling stories about Joey Meyer. He's a legend. And you can imagine a guy who's 6'3", 250 to 300 pounds in high school just mashing the ball. He was drafted out of high school by the Angels in 1981, but decided he wanted to go to college instead. He later said that maybe a few years in the minors playing at a low minor league level might have helped him out with his hitting. But he wanted to play football. Joey played offensive line in high school and was recruited to play football at Arizona State, Michigan State, BYU. He decided to go to the University of Hawaii. Go on, you fighting rainbow warriors. But after a couple weeks, the coaches wanted to redshirt him for the first year, and so he gave up on playing football and concentrated on baseball. After that first year of college baseball, he played in a collegiate league tournament for the Liberal BJs in Kansas, and his coach was former Yankee and A's player Bob Serve. So he learned a lot, kind of traveled around the mainland playing in this collegiate tournament, went back to Hawaii to play in the Summer Hawaiian League, and hit a 500-plus foot home run off of Rick Aguilera, who at the time was in college but would later go on to a, a pro career and an all-star career. Joey's reputation is growing on the diamond. 
he'd already had some injuries, some broken ankles, knee injuries in football, and he knew that baseball would be a much longer career. He hit 23 home runs in two seasons at the University of Hawaii. He said that the conditions in Hawaii was more damp, humid, and windy, so he got less distance, and so he hit fewer home runs. But despite that, he, he did gain some admirers. By this time in 1983, he, he ends up getting drafted in the fifth round, as we mentioned. As we go to this way to the clubhouse, we see that he was signed as a fifth-round draft selection with the Brewers, August 24th, 1983, by Ray Poitavent and June Hirota, or one of these two scouts, turns out to be a guy who should really have, we should have his, his own show. We, he should have a, his own episode about June Hirota. June Hirota was also known as Curly, and... <laughs> From this picture on the University of Hawaii Sports Hall of Fame, you can see why his hair is a little bit curly. He was a Hawaiian catcher of Japanese descent. He went to the University of Hawaii, played both baseball and football. He was a running back, but he was only 5'7", 165. And while he was in college, he was in ROTC at the University of Hawaii in 1941 when Pearl Harbor was attacked. At that time, the ROTC members were enlisted into the Hawaii Territorial Guard, and they were armed. They were given guns to defend the island. And so June Hirota is, is pulled into this, this Hawaii Territorial Guard along with his ROTC classmates. But shortly thereafter, Japanese Americans were removed from the Territorial Guard, even though he was born in Hawaii. And this was in line with some of the shameful and racist acts against Japanese Americans during World War II. Undeterred, students like June wrote a letter to the territorial governor offering themselves for, quote, whatever service you may see fit to use us. So despite being treated as an enemy agent, and they were actually classified as enemy enemy aliens, these students joined what was called the Varsity Victory Volunteers, which was a non-combat role, doing manual labor, doing some hard labor, painting, building, digging ditches at the Schofield Barracks in Honolulu. Some of these volunteers ended up being translators and and being in active combat later once the government realized these guys want to help the war effort. After the war, resumed his studies at the university, captained both the baseball and football teams, graduated with a business degree in economics, and also had an interesting <laughs> sports career. So he, he ended up being an all-star in Japan. So once the Japanese league starts up, Jun Hirota goes to Japan, is a catcher for the Yomuri Giants, and won four consecutive Japanese World Series titles from 52 to 55, comes back to Hawaii, coaches the Rainbow Warriors in the 1960s, and ended up becoming the events manager at Aloha Stadium. And June also was a scout, so while he's there, he's, he has some good connections with the Brewers, and he was would kind of give them a word if he saw a player who he thought had major league qualities. Sadly, June passed away in 2003. I think he was 80 years old at that time. But a really amazing career, one of these great characters who we get to meet along the way on this podcast. A really special f- person who is just a footnote on this card, but helps to tell us a little bit more about what Hawaii was like and what some of that history was all about. The other scout on here is Ray Poitavent, who started scouting in 1961, and he scouted for Baltimore, Milwaukee, the Angels, and the Red Sox. 
And he signed Juan Yeves, Teddy Aguera, Eddie Murray, and Dennis Martinez, among many others. One of the notes we have here is that in 2008, he was involved with the Million Dollar Arm Challenge, an Indian reality show attempting to find baseball pitching talent in India, <laughs> which was made into a movie starring John Hamm. Uh, this is, I love when the show becomes, a, becomes the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yes, and like, Alan Arkin played Roy Poitavent. I don't know what that says about Ray. This challenge had 37,000 participants, and two guys ended up signing for the Pirates. Dinesh Patel, who pitched 13 innings for the Pirates in Rookie League and then returned to India, and Rinku Singh, and he stuck around a little bit longer. He pitched in 85 games over five seasons of low minor league ball, maybe more importantly and notably, is now a wrestler in WWE. And I, I found on his Wikipedia, on the May 10th, 2021 episode of Monday Night Raw, Singh made his main roster debut as the new bodyguard for Jinder Mahal. And Singh was given the new ring name of Veer, and his tag team partner is Shanky. So thank you, Ray Poitavent, for finding this guy who is now in WWE. I'm sure that friend of the show, Brian and wrestling correspondent will thank Ray. Uh, Ray passed away in 2017. These two superstars in their own rights team up to find Joey Meyer. So after getting drafted, Joey starts in the minors in 1984 at Beloit, Wisconsin of the Midwest League. And just, you know, no big deal. Just wins the triple crown in his first year. He was the Midwest League player of the year. He hit 320 with 30 home runs and 102 RBIs. And was a Brewers Minor League Player of the Year. Yeah, so starting to see why the Future Stars label was tied to Joey. That's incredible for his initial season. On the back of this card, we only have Minor League stats. And they're all pretty impressive. The next year, in 85, does even better. 37 home runs, 123 RBIs, still hitting over 300. That's maybe the most impressive part of this is just a huge slugger who is hitting for average. One of his home runs was estimated at 500 feet. The ball went over the 390-foot fence and over a 60-foot screen that was behind the fence and landed on the freeway. <laughs> We're in Ron Kittle territory here. That is Kittle-esque. Kittle-esque. 86, he got invited to spring training. He didn't make the team, but he did start the year at AAA Vancouver, so station to station every year. Terry Boom Boom Bevington who was his coach and would later be a White Sox manager and a White Sox third base coach, predicted that Joey had the power to hit 30-plus home runs at AAA and to play in the pros. A recurring theme for Joey throughout his career and, and even in his younger days was he struggled with his weight. And he had been up around 300 pounds in college, particularly playing as an offensive lineman. That's an offensive lineman's build. In 1986, he had hoped to get down to 245, but he noted, it's so hard to lose weight because we eat before the game and then we eat late at night. He also said that he liked the Canadian beer, particularly Molson, who had sponsored the Vancouver Canadians. And he said, so I try not to eat too much after a game if I have some beer. The trouble is you get pretty drunk on that Canadian beer if you don't eat. Ain't <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <Yeah>. that the <laughs> truth. <laughs> All of this is very relatable, and, and he said that back in Hawaii, I can put on 15 pounds in a week. The food is so good, but salty, and beer goes down too easy. Yeah, he's going to fit in well with Bernie Brewer. It looks like it did have 
in effect, though, as his as his average dropped significantly in 1986. This is the first time that Joey is under 300 for a season, hitting 255. Power dropped a little bit, only 24 home runs. And the Brewers, I think, were a little bit concerned about his weight and that drop in average. And so in 1987, coming out of spring training, they give him some more time in AAA to trim down as he was back over 270 pounds coming out of spring training. Yeah, and as luck would have it, the AAA club also moves from Vancouver to Denver, and that thin mountain air is exactly what a power hitter needs. Going back to the 1988 top source for physics of baseball, Dr. Alan Nathan at the University of Illinois, he has a whole page and article about the physics of a baseball in Denver. We all know that power hitters love to go to Denver, love to play for the Colorado Rockies. And according to Dr. Alan Nathan, this is due to the reduced drag on the ball. Fly balls typically travel about 5% farther in Denver than they would at Fenway. So a 380-foot drive to center field that might be caught for a long out could be a home run at Coors Field. Or, in this case, at Mile High Stadium, where Joey played with the Denver Zephyrs. So while the the ball might carry a little bit farther in Denver, that wasn't the only thing. We saw on Joey's card that he's powerful, and it, it isn't just the thin mountain air. And this season, he did, at one point, hit home runs in four straight at-bats away at Des Moines. So he's really uh, a great power hitter. And that brings us to probably the moment that he is most well-known for. And David, it kind of reminds me of Ron Kittle and the tall tale about some of these home runs that go insane distances. Tell us about this home run, though. To this day, Joey Meyer has the longest measured home run in professional baseball history. While Dr. Alan Nathan says that the ball could carry 5% farther, this is a blast. This home run was measured at 582 feet. So to set the scene, this is a triple-A game at Mile High Stadium. Mile High Stadium can hold 70,000 people. The announced attendance at this game was 1,404. In the fourth inning of this game, Joey hits a home run. And he said that it just barely made it over the fence. His opponents were kind of ragging him, telling him, like, you know, that was a cheap home run. You just barely got it. His next at bat is in the seventh inning, two outs, one on, two two count. A slider comes across the outside part of the plate, and Joey just blasts this ball to left center. He said he just put his head down and started running. He said he knew it was gone, but he didn't stop to admire it. Now he says he wishes he had, because as he rounds third, Terry Bevington, who's the manager of the team, but also was the third base coach, says, Did you see where that landed? And his teammates are all at, the, at home plate pointing at it. Joey hit the ball into the second deck over the Broncos' ring of fame, the name <laughs> of Rich Tombstone Jackson. The team calls out an engineer the next day to measure the distance, and he said it was 582 feet. This measurement is maybe questionable, but if you watch that video, this is a, just a blast. Some of the other home runs that we've talked about, you had Ron Kittle hitting some onto the rooftop. There was, it was estimated that Babe Ruth hit a 575-foot home run. Dave Nicholson hit one 573 onto and over the roof in Comiskey. And, of course, Ron Kittle said that he hit one 700 feet. But this is the longest recorded home run in baseball history, 582 feet. In the video, 
it just reminds me of hitting a home run in RBI baseball that's going out of the park. It went beyond the scope of what the camera could see. It's absolutely astonishing. And Joey wasn't done. He hit a third home run in that game. This home run became an iconic thing in Mile High Stadium. The team installed a different colored seat to mark the landing spot. Joey credited a borrowed bat. He had a new teammate, Donnie Scott, who had some of Cal Ripken's bats. And Joey said he liked it, so he traded his bat out that night, and he hit three home runs. The next night, he said he tried to press his luck, and in his first plate appearance, he broke the bat. So the lightning did not strike again the next night with that bat. So now Joey doesn't have the bat. Somebody else was up in that upper deck and I think got the ball. So Joey didn't get the ball for it. He asked if he could have the chair and the team told him that he could have the seats when they demolished Mile High Stadium, but they didn't end up giving him giving them to him. There's a bit of a mystery around the seat. It's claimed that the seat is in a museum, but the reporter, Ben Hawkman, did an outstanding piece in the Denver Post. He tried to find the seat, but the seat that's in the museum is not the right color. So he has no oh. idea where the actual seat is. He followed all of these threads in this very long article that I encourage everybody to, to read. He ended up not being able to find it. They said that maybe the seats were given to a racetrack, but this reporter could not track them down, and Joey didn't get any of the paraphernalia from that moment that he's best known for. It is a true mystery, David. We will have to find it at some point. I think it's also notable that now stadiums use StatCast to measure home runs. And the longest home run that has been measured by StatCast is 505 feet. So I'm not going to totally question whether or not this is the longest home run in history. But yeah, maybe the, the measurement was not quite as precise as as the techniques that we have now. But it is definitely, it's a bomb. Well, if an engineer said it, I'm going to trust the science on that one. So overall for the 1987 stat line in that mile high year for (laughs) Joey, outstanding, 29 homers, drives in 92 runs, hits 311, and his OPS was 1.069, but he only played 79 games. He injured his hamstring stretching for a catch while playing first base. He came back a month later, but the team shut him down after a couple of games, and so he was limited to only 79 appearances. He recovered in the offseason. He dropped down in weight to 257 by spring training. And at this point, the New York Times, Sporting News, others are taking notice that this guy is a, is a top prospect, as we see from the Future Stars designation. But he was 26, so he's getting up a little bit in age, maybe not quite a young prospect, but there's still big things expected and shows significant power and average in the minors. And so he goes into the 88 season, expected to be the starting DH. Unfortunately, during that season, Paul Molitor had some injuries that kept him out of the field, so Molitor's in the lineup at DH, and Joey ends up playing 66 games at DH, 30 as first baseman. He didn't quite put up Denver numbers, but he was okay. 263, 11 home runs, 45 RBIs in 327 at-bats. And his most memorable moment of that 1988 season is the one that Rev mentioned at the top of the show. August 9th, 1988, Joey hit a walk-off home run against the Red Sox, and it came off Roger Clemens. 
if you do a stat head search of pivotal moments of Roger Clemens' career, he only conceded one walk-off home run his entire career, and this was it. I was amazed when I limited it down that this is the only walk-off home run that he conceded in his career. Yeah, and this moment happens in the second half of the season where things went better for Joey, 284 and seven homers in the back half of the season. And the manager told him if he hits like that, he should expect 25 to 30 home runs in 1989. And did that happen? Unfortunately, he did not continue that form. He started slow, hitting 143 in the first month, and he was sent back down to Denver. At that point, he asks for a trade. It wasn't granted. He was recalled in early July, and he ended the season with a 224 average and seven home runs. And September 30th of 1989 was his last Major League Baseball game. He was released at the end of the season. Mm. And it's unfortunate. Tom Treblehorn said he thought that Joey was a better hitter than Cecil Fielder. If he could just get it together, he could have had an outstanding Major League career, but he just it just didn't quite work out for Joey. So 1990, he's out of the majors. He goes to Japan. He signs with the Yokohama Taiyo Whales, who are now known as the Yokohama DNA Bay Stars. They have a pretty good, maybe not quite Bernie Brewer mascot, but I think his name is Starman. Maybe it's like a David Bowie theme song or something like that. Ooh, yes, Starman. Joey said that this was an experience. The fans would come out to watch him take batting <laughs> practice. Of course, you see this guy who's 6'3", 270. This is right around the time Cecil Fielder's coming back to the States. So the big slugger going to Japan becomes a kind of a phenomenon for the team. He had a good year. He hit 26 home runs in 104 games, but he also had some injuries, including a foul ball that he hit off his toe. And he said he drove the toenail into his toe and... Uh, and his toe swelled up to three times its normal size. That led to a bit of a dispute with his manager. He asked to sub out of a game, and his manager said that he had no guts, after which Joey told the manager to um, do something to himself, and the manager replied (laughs) in English that Joey should do that. (laughs) Joey was not asked to come back in 1991. A sad tale. He comes back to the U.S., Signs a minor league deal with the Twins in 1991, traded to the Pirates, played one more season in Triple A, 250 with six homers and 35 RBIs in 75 games, but then stress fracture in his wrist limits his playing time, and that's it for that season. He tries one more comeback in 1994 in the Hawaiian Winter League as a player coach and then breaks the same wrist, so just... Man, really unlucky with injuries in that way. So closing the book on Joey Meyer, 156 games, 18 home runs, 74 RBIs with a 251 batting average in the major leagues. Some impressive minor league stats, obviously, especially those first four seasons with the Brewers organization where he averaged 30 home runs a season in the minor leagues. And for his minor league career, overall average of 289, 881 OPS and 135 home runs in the minors. Just a really strange career and a strange story. Uh, Where is he now? Every few years, Joey gets called and interviewed about the home run. Somebody, you know, does a Google search of what's the longest home run and says like, Joey Meyer, what in the world is this? And then they call him up. 
he's working as a security guard for a hospital in Maui. He has a really big family. On this card, one of the fun facts was about his son, Tanner. Well, he had four kids from that first marriage. He then got remarried, and his second wife had three kids. So Joey and his second wife had seven kids in their combined family. As of December 2020, he had 14 grandkids. And even though he is not yet 60 years old, he has a great-grandchild on the way. So great to see that the Meyer family is growing. Joey said that he's, you know, doing all right, working in the hospital, he has a good job with with insurance. He also said nobody really asks him about his baseball career, and most of them don't even know that he played. And while he's happy, it seems, to talk to reporters about his moment, he said he's happy that people remember him, he has some regrets. He said he felt like he disappointed a lot of people because Hawaii is such a small place. You feel like you're playing for everybody in Hawaii. And he said that he wishes that he had taken baseball more seriously in, in the off season and trained harder. But instead, he would go back to Hawaii, maybe not eat as well as he should. And if he had stayed on the mainland and trained with some of his teammates, he might have been able to stay in better shape. I guess with these future stars cards, it's always interesting. And I guess I never did the math of how old a guy was. And when I was eight, I didn't know the difference between 21 and 26 years old. But that means a lot in terms of professional baseball. And Joey would have been 26 going into that 1988 season and just making it to the pros. Nowadays, you don't see a lot of guys who become stars at 26 years old. They're they're already beyond that point. Even Ron Kittle, even though he had a kind of circuitous route to stardom, was probably in the pros before 26. But while he has some regrets, Joey said, it's nice to be remembered, and the older that he gets, the more he appreciates that not too many guys get to do that and get to play in the pros. And what happened in Denver was special. Both his quality of play for that 79 games and that individual moment hitting that incredible home run. He still coaches and helps out some youth teams. But like I said, most of the people who know him don't know about this career, this this history. They don't know that his name is up there with Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth all-time legends. While his career was cut short, he said just to be remembered for something is a great honor. And that's kind of why we do this, right? To remember some guys and, and try to dig a little bit deeper into to what made them special. Absolutely. And so, Joey Meyer, you will be remembered here. Thank you very much to Rev for suggesting the card today. And thank you, David, for the story. Thank you, June Hirota, for defending our country, even before Hawaii was a state, defending our nation. And thank you to you at home. If you've got Joey Meyer's chair out there, we need to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.